welcome back to Basic Bible 101. The last podcast we left off talking about Jesus and the miracles he was doing and how popular he had become and the growing concern among the Jewish leaders that he was getting way too powerful. And so this week we are going to move from um, such popularity into a time when uh, Jesus is, is condemned and crucified. Um, we will walk with Jesus through the last week that he lives as a human. And I'm going to refer to certain days. We don't know if the events actually happened on the particular day, but it's likely. So we'll start Monday, Tuesday, etc. of that last week. Now, if you saw uh, The Passion of the Christ or one of the um, movies that portrays um, the crucifixion, then a lot of this will seem familiar. Um, and if you haven't seen The Passion, I would recommend it. Uh, on the flip side, though, if you have not, then the, uh, then this will seem fairly new, but it will explain in a little more detail what was going on that led up to Jesus being crucified. Because you have to think, here's a man who has been so popular and done so much good for the people. Why would they turn against him? Most of the scripture we are going to cover today will be in the book of Luke. And so if you've been reading through the Gospels, it's a good time to try and finish up with the the part that talks about the crucifixion, which is nearly in every one of the um, Gospels to some extent or another. And so I would encourage you to go ahead and read that in all four Gospels, and it will shed light on um, things you may have seen or heard in a movie or whatever, that don't necessarily show up in the book of Luke. Okay, so turn in your Bibles to Luke 19, and we're going to start down in about the middle of the chapter in verse 28. And we are going to see that that Jesus, uh, he has decided to go to Jerusalem. Now remember last week, he had just healed his friend Lazarus. He came up from the dead, and everybody rejoiced. But his disciples knew it was dangerous for him to be near Bethany. And so now Jesus is moving from there, and he is uh, coming down towards the Mount of Olives, which was kind of a little place outside the city that was like a nice park area where he could pray. And then he moves down into Jerusalem, and he enters Jerusalem. And this is what we tend to refer to as the triumphant, triumphal entry of the Christ. Okay, starting in verse 28, and I'll warn you, one of these words I cannot produce, pronounce. Okay, after Jesus had said this, what he had said right before this, he was talking, giving a story about um, being given more talents or less talents, and then the, you know, uh, the more you do with what you've been given, the more God will bless you. So that's how he's kind of refer, it refers back to what he said right before this, and then it says he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and as he approached. Bethphage, I guess that's what it is, and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. All right, let me just stop there a minute. 
I don't know how many of you have been around donkeys or colts, uh, horse, uh, baby horses, what have you. They, uh, if they have not been broken, you really cannot ride them. I mean, you can try, but they are just not going to be very friendly about it and probably will buck you off. And that is where we get a lot of our rodeos down here in the south. But this donkey, this colt, is very um, compliant with Jesus and so the persona of Jesus just is reflected in even the animals at the time and we'll see that Jesus refers to nature he says that you know as the crowd is uh, praising him he's saying and he's being rebuked for letting the crowds praise him as a king he says if they didn't cry out the very rocks would cry out so we see all nature is looking towards this one man and uh, moving in the to see what uh, what will happen, what will uh, bring about the salvation of all the people and uh, provide us someday with a, a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, so here he uh, they they put Jesus on the colt and they're heading into town. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, and he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they kept quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it, and he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment. Uh, against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. This proceeds to talk about um, what will happen to Jerusalem, which is totally destroyed about 70 years after Jesus was in Jerusalem. So it's a prophecy he's saying, but he's also crying over the city of Jerusalem because he knows he's, he knows that he's going to his death, and he knows that this, the people will reject him, and they're not just rejecting him as a man, they're rejecting him as God. Okay. So let's uh, see this, this, what we call Palm Sunday now when we celebrate it, where they threw down leaves, they threw down the coat, they sing Hosanna. Um, it's a great celebration time. Now the reason so many people are coming down to Jerusalem is that it's time for the Passover. Every year the Jews, even to this day, celebrate a uh, season when they look back at their time of bondage when they were in Egypt. Those of you that took the Old Testament will remember that they were um, slaves in Egypt for 400 years and then Moses came along and helped lead them out of uh, Egypt and uh, in that process there was a series of plagues. Is this ringing a bell? <laughs> Those of you that have not taken the Old Testament yet, this will come back later on and, and you'll remember this when, when you cover it. But um, when at the very last plague was one, it was called the death angel that went through Egypt and uh, all of the firstborn died except for those who had put the blood of a lamb, a sacrificial lamb on their door. And so the Jews would celebrate this called the Passover. Uh, looking back and thinking about how sad they were as slaves, some of the things they do even to this day is they eat a meal, a special meal of roasted lamb. It's prepared a special way. 
They eat unleavened bread, which flatbread of some sort, and bitter herbs. And this, this meal is reminding them of the bitterness of their slavery and that, that there came a time when God said, you're going to go. There's not even time for the bread to rise. T- tomorrow you will be freed. So, uh, and that their lives were spared, the death angel, um, just because of the blood on the door and that Jesus becomes their sacrificial lamb. They, they don't know that yet, but this is quite significant that Jesus is there during the Passover and he is crucified uh, as an atonement for their sin. Okay, um, if we had more time, we would talk more about the Passover, but I'm afraid this lesson is going to go a little long. So if you have a chance, you might want to go back and read the story in Exodus that led up to the Passover. Or if you have some Jewish friends, you might ask them, um, what do they do during the Passover and why? Okay, now we're going to move into the last week. So Jesus has entered uh, Jerusalem and they're preparing for the Passover. Let's look at Monday of that week. So the next morning, Jesus enters the courtyard surrounding the temple and there's merchants selling lambs. Now the reason they're selling these sacrificial lambs, which was part of the celebration of the Passover, is because the lambs are supposed to be perfect and without blemish. And if people had lambs back wherever they lived, to be able, to, and some did, to be able to take their lamb and you know, herd it all the way down into Jerusalem probably meant that many of the lambs got uh, injured along the path or they weren't bla- you know, pure and beautiful lambs. So because of that, because people wanted God to accept their uh, sacrifice, they would uh, just go ahead and bring money into the temple and then they would buy a sacrificial lamb there. Now the problem with this was that they were terribly overcharged as of course anybody, uh, any merchant would take advantage of the fact that all these people are here and they have to have lambs. So that's why they call it the money changers. It was the chance for the the merchants in the area to, and you know, they got a lot of lambs just for this purpose, kind of like we do lilies at Easter. And so they were taking advantage of the fact that these um, travelers who had come to worship, um, that they could make good money off them. And because they were inside the temple and they were really abusing their uh, opportunities here and really ripping these people off. And Jesus saw this happening. And he is just furious. He looks at it and he sees these people who are trying to do the right thing and they're trying to come and worship God with a spotless lamb and they are being basically, you know, fleeced. And so he just gets mad and he starts throwing the money changers tables over and scattering coins everywhere. And he says, my house will be a house of prayer, he exclaims, but you have made it a den of thieves. So the religious leaders look at this and they think, well, what authority does he have to chase out these uh, money changers? Um, Interestingly enough that I'd heard recently in a sermon I thought was right on was that the money changers were afraid of Jesus and they took off. I mean, they they listened to him. So his authority and his power, even though he wasn't um, an unusually big man or strong or whatever, but he held within him the power of God. And I think people sensed it. They knew it from the miracles, but I think they could also sense it in his preaching and his um, authority over so many things. And we know that he preached in the temple many times, even though uh, as one who was really um, uh, 
in charge of the scripture. In other words, he preached as if the pre that he had been the one that wrote the scripture. And so uh, the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders really hated him for this because he kind of made a mockery of them. And they kind of had the corner on religious uh, holiness, and they didn't like this guy Jesus coming in and telling them that they weren't holy, that they were just uh, whitewashed tombs, more or less. Look down now in Luke 19, um, verse 45. So when he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling, uh, it is written, he said, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was preaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could find uh, could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his every word. So Jesus is so popular right now that the people, that even the religious leaders and people that probably could have figured out a way to do away with him, it was a very touchy subject. Now, um, one thing I didn't cover when we were covering the Jesus turning over the temples is the issue with Jesus getting angry because it does um, allude to the fact that he was very angry about what was happening. And you might say, well, he was angry. He sinned. But let's look and see. Is it a sin to be angry? You know, emotions are real. They're what we feel. What we do with them makes a, um, a difference of whether we are sinning or not sinning. But feeling emotions is not necessarily a sin or not a sin. It just is what we feel. And so for Jesus to get angry, he didn't sin. Uh, he could have sinned. Uh, there are other verses in the Bible that talk about when you're angry, do not sin. Uh, in other words, you don't want to um, kill somebody or do, you know, um, cross over the line in so many different ways. So you can have a kind of righteous anger, uh, one of almost defending what you believe or what God uh, stands for, and yet not be sinning. Uh, if you want to look at some other verses about anger, which I could understand you might, you might see Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, or look back in James, the first chapter, or 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, or 2 Timothy, uh, the second chapter. There, there are some other places that calls out uh, how we re should respond when we are angry. Okay, now let's look at Tuesday, and this starts chapter 20. It says, One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who gave you this authority? So remember last time we podcast, we talked a little bit about who was Jesus and what did people say about who he was. And so here we see them trying to pressure Jesus into uh, giving him a giving them a clue as to really who is he you know is he uh, one of the prophets reincarnated or just who is he okay so he tells them he says I will also ask you a question tell me John's baptism was it from heaven or from men the reason this is such an interesting question for Jesus to ask is because John the Baptist, who they had eventually beheaded, we didn't cover that, but um, earlier in the year, he John had been beheaded by King Herod because um, he had been that had been the request of a, a young little dancer who had bewitched him more or less, and uh, that's what she asked for when he said, "Oh, I'll give you anything," and she wanted John's head on a platter. So John was. Uh, badly martyred and um, ended his life in, in a way that was kind of uh, 
uh, not not pleasant at all and yet we see that Jesus is going to have to suffer too so um, the people loved John they loved him because he was able to baptize them and give them a sense of moving towards holiness uh, giving people a chance to be something other than wretched that they knew that they were and so the Pharisees are kind of taken aback by this question by Jesus because Jesus is saying was he of God or was he of man and the Pharisees and a lot of the religious leaders had kind of spoken against John uh, it being their little political weasels that they were and so they couldn't figure out which way to go and so they just decided you know we don't know um, and so Jesus tells them uh, we don't, uh, neither will I then tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So we see that Jesus is uh, not going to uh, be pressured into uh, anything, into revealing anything before it's time. Because remember, at this time, Jesus was not going to be a political leader and a king like so many of the people thought. And because he had done all the miracles, because his teachings were so wise and uh, just filled people with hope, and because they were under this oppression from Rome, they put such, they just projected onto Jesus such um, hope that he would be their, uh, the one who saved them from Rome. But that is not what Jesus came to do. And so Jesus continually deflects this, uh, I guess, uh, assumption that he may want to take over. Uh, because when he dies and is resurrected, he is the king. But you know at this point it's not going to make any sense to the people anyway okay so he has this confrontation with the Sanhedrin uh, who are more or less the they're the ones that appoint the Jewish high priest and uh, they're uh, pretty much political um, assembly of some sort for the Jews all right now let's look down into Luke 20 verses 20 okay and let's read this. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power of authorities of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? All right, can you see the challenge here? The people hate Rome. They hate paying taxes. If Jesus says yes or no, it's not wrong to pay uh, taxes to Caesar, then the people are, are going to turn against him. If, on the other hand, he says uh, no, it's wrong, then, he, then he's going to be seen as one who's breaking the law and will, that will be the reason that they can catch him and throw him into prison. And so uh, Jesus says, hand me a coin. And so he takes this coin and he, he looks at it and he says, whose portrait and inscription are on it? And they say Caesar's. And so he says to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So he is turning the this, this story on them and saying, basically, yes, it's right to give back to Caesar, which you have obviously been using. You are using coins. You are accepting Rome 
as um, for commerce purposes and so give back to Rome what is Rome and to God what is God's um, this this once again befuddles them because they can't figure out how to get him to make him guilty of something when we think about taxes in our own time frame we understand I think for the most part that taxes are a necessary evil to be able to maintain the life that we we like and one of the things I see most of the time with Jesus is that he, even though he uh, discounted much of what the Pharisees said and criticized them, he did not criticize and, and say anything against Rome per se. He is maintaining the legal laws of the land and that's why they can't touch him because he really hasn't done anything wrong. But this will change. They will find a way to get at him. Okay, on Thursday, they're preparing for Passover dinner. And Judas, one of his disciples, uh, who has been the, one of the more zealot ones, he's one of the ones, he was also the one that took care of the treasury. So he kind of compiled the money and spent it as they had need. And because he was one of the ones that had been pushing all along for a political overthrow, was thinking, this is it. Now Jesus has the full power. He's got all the people behind him, praising him as a king. This is it. But he begins to see that that's not going to happen, that Jesus is not going to be a political leader. And Jesus just flat out tells his disciples, that's not why I'm here. I'm going to die. So I think Judas just has a change of heart, and he finally realizes that his dreams are not going to be realized. He really wasn't so interested in Jesus' dreams as he was his own uh, hope and belief that they could be freed from Rome. And so he sneaks away and meets with the chief priest and says, Hey, I can give Jesus up to you. I can um, make sure that you can catch him. And so they agree to pay 30 uh, pieces of silver, and they set up an ambush. And so Judas is going to get this 30 pieces of silver when he turns Jesus over to them. So that night, as the disciples are arriving for the Passover dinner, and this is a very... Um, procedural meal. In other words, things are done in a specific order and for a specific reason. And it begins with Jesus putting on a towel and washing the disciples' feet. Now, you would say, why did he have to wash their feet? Well, you know, they wore sandals. They did not, uh, they traveled long distances. They got dirty. And so part of the cleansing process was washing of the feet. Usually a servant did this, but obviously there wasn't a servant or they had neglected to do this. And so Jesus takes on the role of a servant. And even though they hate for Jesus to do this, like, Jesus, you're not supposed to be washing our feet. He says, no, it is necessary. And he's showing them a picture of what it means to be a servant, to be humbled. Okay, so they, after they begin their dinner, and then Jesus blesses the bread, and he picks it up, and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body broken for you. And then he raises a glass of wine, and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Today when we share communion or the Lord's Supper, we remember this moment as Jesus predicting his own death and, and requesting that we uh, continue this practice of breaking the bread and drinking the wine. And so we call this communion. And churches celebrate it differently. They uh, have different traditions that go with it. Some even believe that it's actually Jesus' body and blood it, the, the bread and, and the wine is actually turned into that. I don't particularly believe that. I believe that it's a symbol, uh, just like many symbols of the way we worship, like the cross or anything else. And so there's really two main ordinances that 
most Christians celebrate, and that one is baptism, because Jesus was baptized, and the other one is communion, which is this here. Okay, so he has this time with his disciples. He's, you know, using this opportunity to um, explain what's going to happen. The whole mood is very somber, and they're very sad because they sense in Jesus a great heaviness. And so shortly after this, he leads his disciples out to the hill, the Mount of Olives that he had passed earlier, and he asked them to just stay here and pray. Just pray with me. This account is uh, written about in Luke 22, and it starts with verse 29. And it says that as he's there praying, he's praying that, you know, he tells the disciples, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then he goes off a ways and he kneels and prays and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And so we see that Jesus is not looking forward to what's ahead. And he's asked his disciples to pray, but they don't. They've had this wonderful big meal. They've had possibly up to four cups of wine, if you look at the way the current Passover is done. And they're tired, so they fall asleep. He comes back and he says, get up, get up and pray. It's important today. And once again, he goes off and prays and seeks God's, um, are you sure this is the way we have to do it? And the disciples fall asleep again. So finally, this happens one more time, and he finally just says, okay, let's go. The time has come. And so it's about this time that Judas shows back up on the scene. Only this time, he's with an entire army. And Peter, who sees this and is afraid of what's happening, grabs one of the swords from one of the soldiers and tries to fight off this army. And he, in the process, cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. And Jesus stops him. He says, no, no. And he picks up the ear and puts it back on the guy. And it just magically heals again, which is amazing. And he says, that's not the way we're going to do this. That's not the way this is going to go down. And so they haul Jesus off to do a trial before Pilate. And they have trumped up some charges that they think might stick. And so they're going to give it a go. And since it's in deep in the night at this point, and there's not a lot of people around, they figure they can get away with this. And so the, the army that has come to get him, the, uh, the guards take him to the Sanhedrin where the chief priests begin firing questions at him. And finally they, they ask if he is the Christ, the Son of God. And he says, Yes. Okay. So now they think Jesus has, has blasphemed their God because he is not the Son of God in their mind. And so they consider that a cause worthy of death. But the Romans don't. And so they have to get Rome's blessing so that they can actually crucify Jesus. All right. All of this is taking place um, while the disciples, who they've pretty much scattered. They don't want to go to prison. And so they kind of all follow uh, different spots, trying to catch an idea of what's going on in case they need to mount a rescue. And uh, it's at this time that Peter really, really messes up. Um, Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 62, talks about how three different times somebody comes up to Peter and they said, hey, you were with that guy from Galilee. And Peter says, no, no, it wasn't me. And finally he gets accused of it a third time. And this time he just swears and kind of marches off. So three times he has denied that he knew Jesus. Even though just last week we talked about how he said, Jesus, I will never deny you. you no matter what happens, if, I will march into death with you. So best intentions really are not enough. And Peter is ashamed, and he runs off. In fact, Jesus had told him that before the 
the rooster crows in the morning before dawn, you will deny me three times. And Jesus and Peter says, oh, no, no, I, I wouldn't possibly do that. This is earlier in the day. And then about this time, Peter hears the rooster and he realizes that Jesus was right in what he said. And he's just grief stricken. So those of you that did the homework, you kind of had some extra questions about that that you worked through. And I hope that it gives you a chance to see that that Jesus uh, understands human nature and he still forgives and he still um, died to to make us the kind of people we should be. There is a time later in the book after the resurrection uh, in the book of Luke where uh, Peter has a chance to redeem himself when um, the Lord, actually that's in um, John chapter 21, um, the Lord uh, asks him three times, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And so it's kind of a healing moment for Peter. All right, the trial turns out to be a total mockery. If you have read, and I hope you have, um, Mark 15 has a great description of what goes on with the trial. And basically they say, uh, they haul him up Herod, then they haul him back to uh, Pilate, and then finally they they manage to get um, a verdict against him. But Pilate, being the crafty guy that he is and not wanting to upset the people, says, well, you know, it's the holy day. We always uh, let one of the prisoners go free, and we have this awful thief, Barabbas. Um, let's let's uh, uh, let Jesus go so that you know we can crucify Barabbas and the people are um, they turn against Jesus now the thing that it's hard to understand is how oh, just a week before they love him and that at this point he, they see him in chains in chains beaten and not standing up for himself and they turn and they think wait a minute this doesn't look like a powerful guy how can he lead us and so they say no no we want you to crucify Jesus now, of course, the um, Sanhedrin and the Pharisees have planted people within the crowd who shout this out, no, crucify Jesus. And so the people go along with it. In fact, they, they basically decide that, um, that Jesus has betrayed them in their mind. And so they spit on him. They, um, they just say all kinds of evil things about him and treat him very badly. Uh, as he is uh, given his cross to carry, and he carries it to um, uh, up onto a hill which is called Golgotha. Now Jesus had been so badly beaten that he couldn't actually make it all the way, and so they trick some other guy. They say, hey, you, you look like a big strong guy. You can haul this cross the rest of the way. And so he, they take Jesus up on this hill. They nail his palms, uh, put a nail through his palms so that he's nailed to the cross and his feet. And it is here that he hangs for three hours struggling to breathe and eventually, of course, as we know, he dies. Now, because it's the Sabbath, they are um, in a hurry to get, well, it's becoming the Sabbath. They're in a hurry to get Jesus um, buried or, it, in other words, they can't be touching a dead body at this time because it's sacrilegious. And so they have to hurry and get Jesus off the cross and throw him into uh, a tomb nearby. And so that's what they do. And it's a borrowed tomb. Um, the last words we know that Jesus said on the cross, he says, um, it is finished and uh, basically gives up his spirit. So Jesus was not killed so much as he was allowed, he allowed the people to kill him. Uh, he had the choice at any time to call upon the angels and 
to rescue him. And I think the people kind of thought that's what would happen, but it didn't happen. In fact, at one point, Jesus is kind of crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the people think he's calling angels to come and protect, you know, lift him off or uh, Elijah or somebody. And he's not. He is basically realizing that the sin of the world now rests on him. And of course, Jesus didn't, uh, God did not forsake Jesus, but he did turn his face at this time so that the sin of the world could be um, carried by, by the Son of God. All right, this is what we know as Good Friday, the day that Jesus died. Uh, we're going to stop here since we're running out of, rapidly running out of time, and uh, the next podcast will talk about the resurrection. But some things to remember, Jesus committed no crime. He was guilty of no sin. He gave his life up freely, even though he could have stopped the whole process at any time. Secondly, the two main ordinances that we celebrate are baptism and communion, for the most part. And then three, the Jews today still celebrate the Passover, which commemorates the release of God's people from bondage, whereas Christians celebrate Easter, which is that Jesus came, died for our sins, and uh, uh, was buried and then raised from the dead, which we'll talk about next week. So in the meantime, read your lesson for next week. If you have this uh, workbook, go ahead. It's you can be found. It can be found at basicbible101.com. And um, remember, even though it's a sad day right now with Jesus in the grave, Sunday's coming. Okay, thanks so much for listening, and may you be blessed. Music.